This is a Charles Russell Speechlease podcast. Welcome to our first property patter of 2022. My name is Emma Humphreys and I'm delighted to welcome back Laura Bushaway of our real estate disputes team and Guy Featherston Hall QC of Falkland Chambers for this look ahead to what the property world can expect from Parliament and the courts during 2022. We're also joined this year by Michael Ransom from Falkland Chambers. Welcome all. Now, without further ado, I think we all know that a good number of property cases during 2021 stemmed from COVID issues, and we know already that this is likely to continue. So far, the cases on pandemic rent arrears have been in landlord's favour, and two of these are off to the Court of Appeal in February, namely the Bank of New York Mellon case and London Trocadero against Picture House. Now, given Guy's involvement in one of those cases, I won't ask for predictions, but the topic is obviously a hot one, particularly with the government's proposed binding arbitration scheme on the horizon via the commercial rent coronavirus bill. So let's start there. What do we think about how that scheme is supposed to work? Can we see it being used by landlords and tenants who still haven't reached agreement on pandemic arrears? Um, Guy, can I start with you on that one? Sure, Emma, and hello. Um, I've read quite a lot of commentary on the proposed legislative scheme. We've got to bear in mind, of course, that much of that is premature because the bill has only just got to its report stage. We know the government wants to have it in place by the 25th of March, but really anything could happen. And quite a lot of commentators have said, well, this isn't going to work or how's that going to work? So a lot of things are unclear. But let's stick with the things that seem to be clear. First, it's likely that it's only going to apply to those businesses which were forced to shut during the pandemic because the government told them to. So it won't be officers because they were always able to remain open, although most of them actually didn't. Um, didn't. Um, essential retail, uh, or all of that could have remained open, although quite a lot of shops that uh, were able to remain open did close. Um, rather, it will apply to things like cinemas, um, sports venues, uh, hairdressers, garden centres, all that sort of thing, which had to close. Now, the government also published with the draft bill an impact assessment, as it usually does, and that tells us a little more about how the government thinks the scheme will work. So we know that they think that there will be between 5,000 and 13,000 arbitrations. Uh, we know that they think that there'll be, it's a very precise figure this, it's quite funny, 1,236 arbitrators. We know that they think the arbitrations will take two to three months per case. Um, and we know that the whole process, the government thinks, will last between three and 15 months. And we also know the total cost that's been estimated, which is 24.4 million. That's just for running the scheme. Uh, I think... Uh, the government reckons that each arbitrator will be able to charge fees around 1,500 quid. And that says quite a lot about um, what the government thinks it will attract by way of arbitrators to the scheme. Um, now, the arbitrators' powers, we, we know from the legislation, probably won't change, will be to write off completely or defer payment of arrears for up to 24 months. Um, the arbitrator must abide by principles set out in a code of practice, which has also been published, 
and the overarching aim is to preserve the viability of the tenant's business, but that that shouldn't be at the expense of the solvency of the landlord. Now, those two expressions, viability of business on the one hand and solvency of the landlord on the other, aren't defined. And one can see that this isn't really going to be a lawyer's bean feast. It looks like it's all going to be um, food for accountants because you know they're the sort of people who can look into viability and solvency. We've got a rough guide as to how similar legislation has worked over in Australia. Uh, there are a few cases there which go through the equivalent of our first tier tribunal. In England, by contrast, it'll be done with by private arbitrators uh, who will sign up to do that sort of work and then they'll be checked through by various arbitral institutions like the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators, possibly the RICS, possibly the Bar Council, possibly the Law Society. And out of that will come some arbitrators who will be um, thought to be qualified, who will sit on these various, um, various arbitrations in panels of one, two or three, I suppose. Um, so that, that's all I've got to say about how, how the scheme will work as far as one can judge. Uh, I would have thought all of this might be subject to challenge on human rights grounds. But anyway, let me not start throwing cats among pigeons before the pigeons have all been gathered together. Very wise, very wise. No, I mean, it's an interesting point you make, actually, because when the when the draft bill was published, I happened to be at the Arbrix conference and the RICS seemed to be there sort of saying, oh, all of our members will be brilliant at this. And most of the arbitrators I spoke to at that conference, uh, who were obviously surveyors, um, said, I don't feel that's my remit for exactly what you say. You know, That's an accountant's kind of area, the sort of information that's going to be disclosed it's it's not what I do it's not what I review so it's interesting you know what you say about that and my, Michael did, did you have any thoughts has anything jumped out to you from the draft bill as, as Guy says it's very early stages at the moment yeah I mean the concept of viability really does leap off the page doesn't it when you you look at this bill and it seems to me that that's obviously as we said it's tricky for arbitrators but it's also can be really tricky isn't it for landlords I mean one can see that we're going to have tenants here who could be huge multinational businesses relying on this, or we could have tenants which are your local hairdresser just around the corner. And both of that sort of business, I think it's going to be really hard for landlords to get a grip on viability, either because there'll be far too much information in the public domain about their finances, or there might be absolutely nothing. So I, I do think there's a, a costs risk lurking out there for landlords about how really they're going to get themselves comfortable about viability and that could apply to any type of tenant caught by this bill. Yes and as you say I mean there's this point as well about the kind of potentially sensitive information and confidentiality I mean one point Laura that we were discussing wasn't it is that this envisaging by the bill that the awards would actually be public yeah, I think that's something that um, sort of goes to your second um, question in terms of whether we're likely to see many landlords and tenants using this scheme. And I think that that's a big aspect of, you know, whether that will actually happen. Um, obviously, only time's going to tell that. But and there is a provision, I believe, for some confidential information to be redacted. Um, but as I say, um, most landlords and tenants particularly larger ones would presumably be happier um, if agreement was reached behind closed doors rather than that being you know foisted into the public domain. 
Yeah, I think we wait to see with interest how this actually gets used. I've, I have to say, perhaps I'm getting old and cynical, but I'm a little bit sceptical about it all, and um, and whether it will really find favour with either of the ends of of the spectrum that Michael was talking about there. Let's think ahead a little bit more. Obviously, we've we've seen various cases looking at pandemic lease renewals and from what I see crossing my desk those are likely to continue actually Guy and Michael Joe Wallach in your chambers very helpfully posted on LinkedIn at the end of 2021 for anyone who missed it and was busy already celebrating Christmas Joe's put a very good summary on your website about a judgment he had in uh, one of uh, his pandemic lease renewal cases uh, Savile Adels, I think it's pronounced, and Jane. It's one of the very few lease renewal cases we've seen determined under the FTT pilot scheme, actually. Now, of course, the outcomes in these sorts of cases often depend very much on the particular facts and evidence. But guys, what perhaps I can ask you what your thoughts are about the themes which are coming out of the pandemic lease renewals so far that we've seen? Well, very few, Emma, um, other than that old chestnut of valuers for one side or the other or both over-egging their particular puddings. Uh, so one thing that has marked this pandemic is almost a complete absence of evidence. So you tend to get on these renewals loads and loads of comparables put forward, all pre-March 20, um, some of them from 2019, you know, the good old days with landlords valuers vainly trying to assert that really we're back in the good times now and Omicron's not a problem and um, it's all it's all plain sailing. Um, I, I think what that approach tends to overlook is that judges of the FTT who commonly determine these things are ordinary people who go about their business, go into shops, walk the high streets and will have seen the footfall that's dropped off and they're not fools. So, you know, if you try and pretend that it's all great, I think you'll get dusty treatment from the FTT. Turning to legal themes of which very few are emerging, there's of course the usual one, should there be a COVID rent suspension provision in new leases, but that's more or less done and dusted now. I think most landlords won't, won't argue with that. Most landlords will think, well, it's never gonna happen anyway. Um, so why bother arguing it? Uh, other than that, the only, the only other thing that I can think of, which is not really a COVID thing at all, is should there be a rent-free period at the beginning of the new 54 Act lease? And I, I've got certain views about that, which I've expressed in writing before. Um, the only thing I'd say about that is that uh, Judge Dight in the Central London County Court said contrary to all the other cases going the other way that there shouldn't be uh, a, an, an allowance made for the absence of a rent-free period at the beginning of the, the new tenancy and none of us have seen his judgment yet it's just been reserved for months and months and months um, but if if that is what he said then I think he's right and it'd be fascinating for a case like that to go up to the high court or, or even beyond so that the matter can be settled one way um, or another for, for good. It's interesting, actually, that judgment you mentioned, because that came up at the Arbrooks conference. And uh, and again, we were all kind of <laughs> getting excited, waiting for this judgment, but uh, still excited and waiting. So never know, maybe he's on a judge is one of our listeners and we look forward to receiving your judgment. <laughs> um, <laughs> the one point you made there, Guy, of course, is 
about the importance of expert evidence when it comes to these lease renewals. Um, we recorded a podcast last year covering some tips and traps when it comes to that. But when it comes to the disputes that we've seen and probably going to continue to see about rents and interim rents for a lease renewal under the 1954 Act, have we got any suggestions that we would offer to surveyors who are at the front line negotiating these deals and or preparing their expert reports? Um, Michael, perhaps I could invite you to comment on that. Yeah, I think we all have great sympathy with the difficult task that surveyors have got at the moment, given the great uncertainty in the market. And I think one of the, one of the, things, one of the things which is emerging out of a lot of the cases that I'm seeing is that more than ever, there are side deals being done with tenants, which makes it more and more difficult really to identify what the true comparable is. And one has huge sympathy with, with experts who are wrestling with this, both in the context of trying to agree deals and in particular in the context of doing their expert reports. But in that latter category, we are, I'm afraid, seeing lots and lots of judges complain about experts who give too many comparables. And I think this is born out of, this is a symptom of the anxiety. Experts think, for good reason, they think that giving lots of examples makes their report better. And probably that's not really true. And often it might be better to be brave and deploy a small number, deploy your best examples, your best genuine comparables, rather than risking overloading your report with things to the judge might in the final end consider aren't really all that useful to the court. So I think in terms of expert reports, that's my that's my big point. Don't don't let your anxiety manifest itself in there being too many comparables. There's a there's a fascinating dynamic at the moment about turnover rents, which goes really both to expert reports, but in particular deciding whether or not to to settle something before you get to court. And I was involved in one case last year where at the pleading stage, the tenant started out wanting a turnover rent and the landlord didn't. And by the time we got to court, the parties had entirely reversed their positions. And each case is obviously gonna turn on its own facts, but I think we're gonna see more and more cases coming out where the courts struggle with imposing a turnover rent under the 54 Act. And so experts who decide that they're not going to advise a client to settle and agree a private treaty turnover rent are going to have to be really careful about what evidence they can put before the court about how a turnover rent, if one were to be imposed, could be calculated. I mean, there's obviously a complicated, interesting interrelationship between the commercial factors and the hypothetical willing tenant that we've all got to deal with under the 54 Act. And of course, you know, you might have a, a high turnover, low profit margin tenant, or you might have the exact opposite, you might have the low volume, high margin tenant. And what is an expert going to say to the court about the difference in percentage turnover? payable by those two species of tenant. And of course, that's made even more difficult where you're dealing with the hypothetical tenant, because you can't really point to the person who's in occupation. So I think we are going to see more turnover rents being talked about. And 
as my case from last year suggests, it could equally be a landlord as a tenant trying to insist on a turnover rent. But I think both lawyers and surveyors dealing in this world just need to be a bit alive to the real dangers of trying to get a turnover rent imposed by the court and the court not being happy to do that. So I think those are my those are my tips for, for experts in this difficult world for them. Yes, turnover rent is one of my uh, key areas of interest. So I do await uh, with great interest to see how that uh, pans out perhaps during this year. Of course, it's not all about COVID. There's still plenty of business as usual. So let's have, maybe have a think about residential property because I know we're likely to see various service charge cases during the upcoming year. One case which may be of particular interest is Pollock against St Joseph's Gate Management Company, where the FTT will be asked to confirm that the management company can change the tenant's proportionate contributions on the basis it would be equitable to do so. Um, so that will be an interesting one. Laura, we had a decision on service charge apportionment last year in Aviva and Williams. So perhaps it's useful just to remind our listeners briefly of that decision, if you don't mind, because it is an interesting area, I think. Yes, certainly, Emma. Aviva was a court of appeal decision which confirmed that where a residential long lease contains a clause enabling a landlord or maybe a third party such as a surveyor to adjust the service charge apportionment, both the landlord and the leaseholder has the right to refer the question of apportionment to the FTT if there is a dispute. And in this case, the relevant clause in the lease required the leaseholder to pay a fixed percentage of service charges and estate service costs or such other part as the landlord may otherwise reasonably determine. The upper tribunal had previously found that the effect of the statutory restrictions in the Landlord and Tenant Act 1985 and specifically section 27.6 uh, for those that are interested, um, the, the effect of those restrictions meant that the words referring the landlord's discretion to determine the apportionment had to be deleted. But the Court of Appeals said, no, that's not right. They held that those words needed to remain in the clause. But what they said was that the ability to alter the apportionment passed to the FTT when there was a disagreement. So it'll be interesting, I think, on the back of that Court of Appeal decision in Aviva to see um, sort of how that's applied in Pollock and what happens there. Definitely. And apart from Pollock, Michael, are there any other cases coming up which landlords and tenants of residential property should look out for during the upcoming year or any decisions from 2021 that you think they shouldn't forget about? Yeah, I think there are, I think there are two upcoming cases which people are going to want to keep their eyes open for. And there's one thing probably going to emerge out of government or out of a, a drive by government, which is worth just also keeping one's eyes open about. So the first case is a service charge case. And it, I'm afraid if people get a bit terror struck by thinking about residential service charges and the various controls on those, I'm afraid it allies with that something which makes most of our blood run cold, which is VAT. Because it's a case concerning some residential blocks of flats in London, which have about two and a half thousand tenants in them, all to do with the recovery of VAT on staff costs. And this case is going to go to the FTT later this year, but the simple point, I feel very confident saying it's simple given I'm not having to present the case, but the, the simple point is if a landlord directly employed staff to manage these quite large estates, 
there'd be no VAT. Very easy. But in this case, the staff are employed indirectly. They're employed via a managing agent. And this sort of structure means that VAT is chargeable. And that, of course, means that you've instantly got a 20% hit on the service charge, a 20% increase. And the tenants are saying that this is unreasonable because that cost could be reduced by employing the staff directly. And the landlord is like to say that this is the entirely normal way in which a development like this is managed. And so it's going to be very interesting to, to see how the first tier tribunal navigates its way between those two positions. But the reason why I think it's of, of interest more broadly is quite a lot of schemes are, are set up exactly like this. So it's probably going to be a pretty broad significance. And if the tenants in this one case succeed, then we may well find that landlords are either going to have to start directly employing staff, or they may need to start swallowing this potentially quite significant 20% VAT charge on the basis that it, it can't be passed on through the service charge. So that's a, that's a, a case to look out for about VAT and residential service charges. There's another, on the face of it, pretty esoteric, but it's going to be, have potentially quite wide-ranging effects case called Alberti and Cadogan Holdings Limited. Now, this one's going to the Court of Appeal, and Alberti is all about the Leasehold Reform Act 1967, which your listeners will know is the statute that allows you to buy the freehold of a long leasehold house. And Alberti is all about disregarding improvements. And what happened in this case is back in the 1970s, the house, well, the building rather, was converted from five flats into a single house. And in the halcyon days of the 70s, the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea said you didn't need planning permission to do that. But nowadays that position has changed. And in order to change a, a block of flats back into a house, it's accepted between the parties, and this must be right, that you do need planning permission. And moreover, everybody in this case accepts that RBKC would not give that planning permission today. And so what, what the tenant is arguing in this case is that, well, you've got to value the property at the date of the 67 Act claim on the basis that use of the single house is unlawful. And unsurprisingly, that would depress the amount of money the tenant had to pay. Equally unsurprisingly, the Cadogan estate argued the exact opposite and said that, well, no, all you do is you calculate the value by reference to the building's planning status as at the valuation date, which would mean that because it had been converted, the property was able to be used as a house and should be valued as a very expensive house. Now, the tenant won at first instance, but it really does remain to be seen whether that decision survives its trip to the Court of Appeal. And I think it's, it's pretty, pretty easy to see how anybody dealing with a 67 Act matter, be they a landlord or perhaps more significantly if they're a tenant, will want to watch out for what the Court of Appeal says about disregarding tenants' improvements. The final point I just wanted to mention isn't a case, but it is something which I reckon is going to come back to life a bit in 2022, and that is common hold. Now, we've had the Law Commission's reinvigorating common hold document from 2020, 
that was 640 pages of reinvigoration. And then back in January of last year, the government announced seminal reforming legislation aimed at revivifying common hold. But perhaps most tellingly, in May of last year, the, one might say, slightly ominously named Common Hold Council was established. And the role of the Common Hold Council is to advise the government on, in effect, trying to get widespread take up of Common Hold and trying to ensure that Common Hold can work in as many different settings as possible, including sites which are large and sites which are complex. Now, it seems to me there's a definite political drive here uh, for many, many reasons to see common hold brought more and more into use and actually obviously at the expense of residential leases. And anybody who, who in January 2022 is even thinking about developing a site which they might sell off on leases, residential leases, would do very well, in my view, to pay attention to what's happening with the Common Hold Council over the course of 2022. Because I think even if we don't get legislation, we will, I think, get a real steer as to what people are and are not going to be expected to do or compelled to do on their residential schemes in years to come. Well, I think there's a lot there for people to think about. So thanks very much for that. That's, um, yeah, a lot of interesting stuff on the uh, horizon and a lot of food for thought. Before we leave residential property, we can't, of course, discuss it without mentioning the continuing passage through Parliament of the leasehold reform ground rent bill. Laura, perhaps you could just summarise for listeners where that bill's got to and its likely timetable, and then perhaps we can share some thoughts on some of the key points which listeners need to be aware of about it. Yes, yeah, sure. Um, I think this is the first part of the package of um, sort of reforms in the leasehold arena um, common hold um, and a reinvigoration of common hold potentially being the second part, which Michael just alluded to then. So the leasehold reform ground rent bill is already making its way through Parliament. And once it becomes uh, law, it's going to reduce ground rents in new residential long leases to zero. Now, the bill's already passed through the House of Lords. It's currently making its way through the House of Commons. The next stage is report stage on a date to be fixed. So there can still be further amendments made to the bill. But I think it's fair to say that it's close to completion of its journey and it's anticipated to be added to the statute books in the next few months. So one of the key points from the bill is that it applies to long leases of houses and flats. So where a voluntary lease extension is granted outside of the statutory mechanism, a landlord can continue to charge ground rent for the remainder of the term of the original lease. But once the extension period kicks in from the date of expiry of the term of the original lease, the ground rent under the bill will then become a peppercorn rent. For lease extensions under the statutory mechanism, a peppercorn ground rent is already payable from the date of completion of the extended lease. So those lease extensions are excluded from the bill. Now, I think it's fair to say that to some extent, the industry has adjusted to the potential implementation of this bill and many landlords already do not include ground rent in new leases so the bill is unlikely to change the position radically um do you agree guy uh, i do laura and um the only thing i think worth stressing from a landlord and tenant lawyer's point of view is that 
the the act isn't retrospective so it doesn't bring within its purview leases which were granted before the act comes into force and also valuably it, it excludes leases granted which come into force after the date of the act but which were in pursuance of a contract made before that date so you don't fall into that trap just because you've got um you've got a lease granted after the date of the act if it was actually pursuant to an agreement for lease made historically now th there is a real trap though um contract this is section one subsection three doesn't include an option or right of first refusal so if you've got an existing lease which has got an option for renewal in it and pursuant to that option to re for renewal you agree that you should have a new lease this is after the date the act comes into force and um that's granted for a substantial premium at um, a massive ground rent unfortunately that's struck down by the act that is included um in the act and that means that those who've entered into deals like that providing for enhanced ground rents at big premiums will find that they don't have quite the bargain they thought they were going to have so uh, I, you know that's the sort of thing which will come up and hit people who are just not wary of this sort of thing and there needs to be quite a lot um, brought to the attention of the poor old punters um, when when people are going through their convincing for um, for, for renewal leases but apart from that, Laura, no, I think it's um, it's all fairly straightforward. It's been a long time coming. I think there's been plenty of attention paid in the press to all of this. And indeed, we've seen some developers already agreeing voluntarily um, not, not to charge high ground rents, even though they got the contractual right to do so. So it's, it's, um, it's interesting. Yeah, we've seen that as well. And, you know, as you say, I think things are moving in that direction with or without the legislation, perhaps anyway. So, um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how much difference there really is and you're quite right you know probably the potential for some confusion is <laughs> it's more going to be what we see and talking of legislation uh, we of course continued to see plenty of case law on the electronic communications code during 2021 um michael that's obviously all set to continue especially with the various appeals that we have heading to the supreme court in february uh, for listeners we will put details of those cases and all of the cases mentioned today onto our website for you now those decisions that are going off to the supreme court are going to affect landowners and operators and hopefully resolve some uncertainties about how the code works. But do you think they will lead to us seeing less disputes and litigation relating to the code during 2022 and onwards? Am I hoping for too much? Ah, well, I think one might be hoping for too much if one expects to see fewer code disputes. I mean, we are in this peculiar position that yeah, we, we should get some very welcome clarity from the Supreme Court about various issues relatively early, one would hope, this year. But these are issues that the government has also acknowledged are problems for the industry. And so we had the code consultation where the government provided its response a few weeks ago. And this huge overlap between the issues that are going to the Supreme Court and the issues that the government says it's going to legislate to change. So, you know, things like operators who are in occupation and things like the interrelationship between the Code and the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954, 
we ought to get Supreme Court clarity, and that ought to reduce disputes about that. But we are almost certainly also going to see legislation which deals with things including those. And I think we've got to hope that the Supreme Court goes first, and then the government legislates armed with an informed view from the Supreme Court about what the issues are and what the solutions should be, or what the law might be. But I think one trend that we might see, and which is borne out by the Upper Tribunal Users Group, is I think we're going to see more and more renewal cases and fewer acquisition of brand new right cases. And we're probably going to see quite a lot of those transferred to the first tier tribunal, as opposed to being kept in the upper tribunal. And I think the upper tribunal is going to keep the cases that concern new points of principle, and what, without being rude, one might say are the more routine cases will be heard by the FTT. The one thing which is in the government's consultation response and which I think does have the potential to reduce hearings in the tribunal is ADR. And if I had a prediction for 2022, is that we're going to see much more focus on telecoms alternative dispute resolution. The RICS is drawing up a mediation scheme. We can see from any number of upper tribunal decisions that the judges there are expressing concerns about the costs of telecoms litigation. And I imagine over the next 12 months, we're going to see parties really strongly encouraged to use something like the RICS mediation scheme. And I don't think it's too radical a suggestion to say that the courts, the tribunals are going to start penalizing people in terms of costs who fail to engage in some sort of alternative dispute resolution in the telecoms world. So fewer disputes, possibly different types of disputes, almost certainly, and probably quite a lot of ADR to deal with those disputes. Yes, I wait with interest to see how the ADR gets on. I have a theory that perhaps it's ignoring the fundamental problem with the code, uh, but uh, anyway, we'll, uh, <laughs> we will see and see whether it makes any difference. Um, and I do entirely agree with you that I hope the Supreme Court gets there first before Parliament, given uh, how they got on with drafting the original code. I have no desire for much more drafting. <laughs> Sorry much. <laughs> Um, well, thank you all for your time today. That's been a really fascinating review of what we're likely to see in the legal property world during the upcoming year. Whilst we wait to see how the courts and parliament deal with these various issues, I shall just wish our listeners a very happy and healthy new year on behalf of us all. And thank you for joining us. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. 